Well, do please uh, turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 2, page 756 is the uh, page number if you have a church Bible, page 756, uh, to the first of those two readings that we had earlier in the service. Jeremiah chapter 2, and we're beginning to look for the next three weeks through this uh, chapter of the book of Jeremiah. Uh, This article in the Times a few weeks back caught my eye. The headline is, Holy Downshifters Swell Vicar's Ranks. It explains how people in in midlife uh, are giving up very successful careers to become vicars. Clearly the editor had some column inches to fill because the article wasn't that fascinating. But um, what hit me was the statistical forecast here that for every 100 children who attended church in 1930, there will be just four in 2030. So in 100 years, from 100 children, every 100 children in 1930, just four in 2030. That is an alarming drop. And it's just another of the church attendance figures that tells us that the Church of England is in decline. There are, of course, glorious, some glorious exceptions. Many evangelical churches are growing. And I'm hugely encouraged by the strategic initiatives that have been launched by evangelicals to develop and sustain that growth. But we can't escape the fact that the Church of England, and I guess the Church in England, is in decline. And not just numerically, but a spiritual malaise has set in. Uh, Of course, the two are linked. When the Church has lost its way spiritually, numbers will fall. And there is no doubt that in the last 20 years, the decline of the Church of England has been spectacular. Uh, the uniqueness of Christ has been eroded, so it is no longer big news when interfaith services are held in our cathedrals. Can you remember when the first of those, uh, those, fa- uh, those interfaith services were held in a cathedral and how we all made a big do about it? Now it's happening all the time and we don't even think about it. We should be outraged when that happens. Jesus is not just one of many spiritual options. And yet all over the country today, that is exactly how he will be presented. Or should I say how he will be misrepresented. The uniqueness of Christ has been eroded and the word of Christ has been undermined. Years and years ago, as you know, theological liberalism launched an assault on the reliability of the Bible. First questioning the supernatural and now today denying anything that doesn't fit with the culture or 21st century reason. And so again, you can go to churches all over the country today, and indeed just down the road from us, and the Bible will not only be ignored, it will actually be denied. And the word of Christ is not only being undermined in theologically liberal churches, it is in many charismatic, not all, but many charismatic churches too, as they put the word second to experience. And then, of course, established churches like ours can easily relegate the word and put it behind tradition. That is a real danger for us here. Doing things because that's the way we've always done them. Not because the word of God tells us to do something, but just because we've always done it that way. The uniqueness of Christ is being eroded, the word of Christ is being undermined, undermined, and the moral standards of Christ are being ignored. The most obvious example is the way homosexual practice is being championed by a number of senior churchmen and being confronted by almost none. And I think that's almost as bad when they don't stand up and speak out against those who who champion homosexual practice. 
Friends, these are drastic times. I doubt any sane evangelical would seriously challenge the assertion that the Church of England is suffering spiritual decline. And that's why for the next three weeks on Sunday mornings, at the beginning of this new academic year, we're turning to Jeremiah chapter 2. For here, Jeremiah deals with this very issue of decline. And of course, as you'll know, Jeremiah knew all about spiritual decline. He lived through a desperate time in Israel's history. Yes, he did experience a few very exciting years of spiritual revival during King Josiah's reign. Do you remember Josiah, King Josiah? What a great king he was. He tore down the high places and rid the nation of the idolatry that had so ruined it. Those were great times in Judah's history. But for the most part, Jeremiah lived through a time of unprecedented turmoil in Judah. A time of spiritual decline that ended with Judah going into exile under the judgment of God. But before that happened, the Lord called Jeremiah to proclaim to Judah that they were on the verge of spiritual disaster. Look at the Lord's heartbreaking question to his people in Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 5. Jeremiah 2 verse 5, this is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? See what the Lord is saying? What have I done that made you leave me, says the Lord? It is a desperately sad verse. The people of God had walked away from the Lord like a selfish and adulterous wife. They walked out on him, attracted by other lovers. And so Jeremiah was to call them back to him. But would they listen? Well, many of you know the book. No, they wouldn't. And so they went into exile. Question. As we study Jeremiah's words over these next three weeks, will we listen? Will we take note? Will we act? By addressing the issues in the church that we're part of, but also by looking very closely at ourselves. It would be very easy for us to read these verses and simply to point the finger. But let's not fool ourselves there is a persistent tendency for the church and for every Christian to slip back into idolatry. Have you noticed it in yourself? I have. In my prayer life. It is a constant struggle to make time to pray. And then when I do, my mind wanders off so easily. Are you the same? In obedience. I know it is good to obey the Lord, but other things are so appealing In my best moments as I'm singing these songs, I want the Lord to have my heart. I really do. But when it comes to it, I find myself so attracted by other things. Do you find the same? Have you found yourself fired up on a Sunday, but by Monday, doing absolutely nothing about it? Of course you have. We're all the same. Spiritual decline is as much a danger for us as it is for anyone else because our hearts are very, very sinful. Jeremiah says it later on in his book, doesn't he? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. All the time we are inclined to drift away from the Lord. And so as Jeremiah addresses the issue of spiritual decline, we must examine ourselves carefully and avoid the insidious temptation to apply this to everyone else except ourselves. Well, enough of the preamble. This chapter tells us how spiritual decline begins and it is simple and terrifying. It all begins with our heart going cold towards the Lord. 
Look at Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. It's such a poignant moment in this chapter and indeed in the whole book. The Lord looks back to a time when Israel was devoted to him. It's honeymoon language, isn't it? Verse 2, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me. It's a mark of the young bride. She'll go anywhere and put up with anything for her groom. That's verse 2. Here's the bride saying to the sweetheart, "Um, you may not be able to afford a luxurious mansion in Fullwood, but I don't care, because I love you. I'm devoted to you and I'll live in a grotty bed sit in the manor so long as we're together. That's verse 2. The Lord remembering when Israel first loved him willing to wander through the desert with him. No palatial mansion to live in, you see, just tents. And you know, as I've studied this, I found myself quite wistful. Because these words have brought back to me the time when I first came to know the Lord. When my love for him was just like this, I too would go anywhere with him, do anything for him. I can remember the excitement of simply knowing him. The feeling that as long as I was with him, serving him, getting to know him, that's all that mattered. So long as I was involved in his mission and his plans for the world, I was happy. I've been wistful this week. Because for me, that wholehearted, and some would say reckless abandon, is in the past tense, as it was for Israel, verse 2. See, I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me. In the past tense. This verse has shown me what I guess I I knew deep down, that I'm already in spiritual decline. It's bad news to have your your vicar in spiritual decline, isn't it? Of course, it doesn't look like it now if you compare it to when I first became a Christian to now. All those years on, my theology is sounder than then, my public praying is more mature than then, my knowledge of scripture is greater than then, my ability to answer questions in evangelism is better than then. But, But when it comes to love for Jesus... Well, honestly, it's just not as strong as then. And I'm not just talking about an emotion, but the fact that I I really would go anywhere and do anything for him then. That I'd obey whatever he said in his word then. But now? And I guess there's a good number here who would say the same. You remember times when you would go anywhere for Jesus and do anything for him. Now you're more cautious. You like to keep life a little safer you find yourself more attached to the things of the world. Things that, when you first became a Christian, you didn't give a monkey's about. And what is true of individuals can be so true of whole churches as it was of a whole nation here. See, as I've been studying this, I've been thinking of Christ Church Central, the, the church plant from here a couple of years ago. There's a vitality about that church. They've lived on the edge and taken some bold and courageous steps. They've really had to trust the Lord. When you're among them, you get the sense that they'd go anywhere and do anything for him. They really do love him. But how many churches have begun that way? How many church plants have have had that kind of devotion to the Lord and now, years later, they've settled down, become more measured, or worse, lost their way altogether? And now they're simply going through the motions. Their buildings are empty. Who put the buildings up in the first place? 
So in verse 2, the Lord looks back to a time of undivided loyalty and love for him and he warns that when we first lose that first love, spiritual decline has already begun. See, verse 3, Israel was holy to the Lord, but not any longer. Other things are more important now. Like a stale marriage, the spark's gone. Well, for Israel, it went years ago. And be sure, it's no fault of the Lord's. He was always a committed, devoted, loyal husband. Verse 3, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Do you see how the Lord protected his people? Derek Kidner says this verse demonstrates the fierce protectiveness that would brook no rival and permit no slight on Israel's honour. See, verse 3, Israel was the first fruits. It's the, the language of the temple sacrifice. The first fruits belonged exclusively to the Lord. No one was allowed to touch the first fruits. And anyone who did was guilty of stealing what was not theirs, and as a result, calamity came upon them. And of course, that was true in the journey from Passover to Sinai. Just ask the Moabites or the Amalekites, when they attacked the Israelites, the first fruits. The Lord defeated them. That's verse 3. All who devoured her were guilty and disaster overtook them. Oh yes it did. See here is the Lord protecting Israel, his bride in verse 3. And in verse 2, here is Israel in love with the Lord. They adored him, they worshipped him, they were devoted to him. Verses 2 and 3 describe an unsport relationship, real and proper and warm and godly. Verse 3, Israel was holy. They were the first fruits. They belonged totally to the Lord. So time and money and everything was seen as a stewardship. If it had been, if it had been written back then, they really could have sung Francis Havergal's great hymn of wholehearted devotion. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And But that was then. See, now the Lord is saying, what happened to all that? Look at verse 5. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Now let's be sure that we don't go the same way as individuals or as a church family. Desperately we're connected to a denomination that has already strayed so very far from the Lord. We mustn't do the same. And indeed, I believe we have a responsibility to take these words, this principle of Jeremiah's, to call others to return to the Lord. You see, it's just not obvious when it happens. Like a stale marriage, from the outside, everything can look fine. When I've spent time in conversation with couples with marital problems, they'll talk for a while and then one of them might say these devastating words, you know, I haven't loved her for years. Or she might say, we've not slept in the same bed for years. For years, but no one knew. No one knew. Those who knew, who were closest to them didn't know. And often as you dig around, even they can't remember themselves when it all began to go cold. But you see, in the same way, when a church begins to decline, on the outside, everything looks fine. The formalities continue. People carry on gathering, gathering to sing their songs, Committees meet. Well, sure sign of a church going, isn't it? Committees meeting. The buildings are a hive of activity. 
From the outside it can look so healthy, but, but something is missing. Now, at the beginning of the year, when we first moved into the vicarage and before I'd been instituted, I took the opportunity to visit one or two other churches in Sheffield. At one church, the preacher said this, The gospel is all about one message. Love your neighbour as yourself. He said, if you love people, if we love people, then we'll be doing evangelism. That's all you've got to do, just love people. and you're, you're, That's the whole summary of the Bible, he said. Now, it may sound good, but the gospel is not all about love your neighbour. That's humanism. Jesus said this, didn't he? The first commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And then he said, the second, love your neighbour as yourself. If we don't love God, it doesn't matter what we're doing, we're in spiritual decline. A heart cold towards the Lord. Secondly, and much more briefly, a heart hot for worthless idols. See, when did Israel's love for the Lord wane? That's the question I've been asking. Well, notice verse 2. They followed him through the desert. Before they arrived in Canaan, everything was fine. But once they were in Canaan, they were spoilt by what we might call rather provocatively the, the prosperity gospel. Once in Canaan, they wanted everything that the nations around them had. Do you remember that? And that's what I find about myself and other Christians in Britain. That's what I fear about myself. That I just want everything that everyone else has. So then there's nothing significantly distinctive between me and those who don't call themselves Christian. I'm just like them. We want everything the world has. And that's how we lose our love for the Lord. We begin to chase after other things. Verse 5, What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Well, there's a warning. What you chase after, you become. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. And look, what I'm going to say now, I don't find any glee in saying, in fact, it hurts me and pains me to say it. But I see this when I take funerals. As people tell me about their loved ones, it is desperate that the summary of 70 or 80 years is so empty. All their lives they've chased after worthless things. They've had nothing to do with the Lord. They haven't wanted him. They've chased after other things. And now they're dead. And as I'm looking at what I've been told about this person, preparing something to say at the funeral, I... I realise that I've got virtually nothing to say. It's abundantly apparent that their lives became worthless because they chased after worthless things. That is a terrible thing, isn't it? You become what you chase after, verse 5. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. And if we're not following the Lord, then we are chasing after idols. Worthless idols. How do we know when other things have our affection? Well, let me ask you this. What do you daydream about? You know, when you're sort of just off with the fairies, as they say, when, when suddenly your mind's wandering, what do you daydream about? What, what makes your heart race? What is it you get really excited about? That's what you live for. That's what you live for. And if it's not the Lord, then 
and I include myself in this, then you're in spiritual decline. I was speaking at a conference last year and during the conference one person stood up and and told us of a telephone call that she'd had with a friend of hers. And she said to her friend, how are you doing? And her friend said, well, I'm really well, thanks. I had a great day yesterday. I feel a bit naughty, actually. I was totally self-indulgent yesterday. The children were away with friends all day. My husband was away on business and and so I treated myself. And at this point, uh, as she was telling us this story, I remember thinking she was going to say something like this, you know, I did a bit of retail therapy, shopped till I dropped, or or that she lay in the garden with her feet up, reading the novel she'd been meaning, meaning to start for ages. She actually went on like this. I treated myself. I unplugged the telephone, I went up to the quietest room in the house, the loft conversion, and I spent the whole day reading the Bible and praying. I felt really naughty, but it was wonderful, she said. And when I heard that story, I realised how far I was from the Lord. Because if I had a day like that, free, to do whatever I wanted, I wouldn't do that. Because I don't love him as much as I used to. Verse 2, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert through a land not sown. Verse 5, this is what the Lord says, What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. If you're like me, you've been found out today. But this is not the end. It's the end of the sermon, but it's not the end of the service. Because uh, in a little bit of time, we're going to take bread and wine. And we're going to see the devotion of the Lord to us. The Lord who loves us so much that he would die on the cross for us. The Lord who loves you even though your heart is far from him. Even though you chase after worthless idols, just like me. He loves you and he says, I'll die for you. And so we need to be encouraged. This is the only thing that will get us back on track. As we see how much he loves us, we know we're forgiven. And as we see just how much he loves us, That will be all the motivation we need to want to love him back.